Welcome back to Badass Women 50 Plus. I am Robin Lane. I am the producer, director, psychotherapist, and creator of this show. Today, I will be interviewing Tyler Chase, who is an auteur filmmaker, who founded LaRange Productions and is a graduate of NYU Film School. In today's interview, we will screen three of her promotional trailers for her most recent documentaries. She's a multi-award winning documentarian. And though each of these stories is different, the theme that she presents is the same and it is about displacement and what that does to the human soul. Tyler is a fighter and an activist and so she went before the United Nations Periodic Review of Human Rights to screen footage from Castle in Brooklyn which she will discuss today, that tells the story of a family displaced from their home of 40 years. The story of Castle in Brooklyn shows how cities like Barcelona revere visionary architects, but in New York City, we evict them. But that's enough of me. Let me introduce you to Tyler Chase. Well, we are here with our guest, Tyler Chase. Hi, Tyler. Hi. Can you hear me all right? Yes, I can hear you perfectly. Good. So let's talk about, you started out as an actress, producer, writer, but in the theater. And then you yes, switched. Yes, I started out in theater. And, and also in the theater, model. yes. And then you went and you went into become a filmmaker, an auteur filmmaker. So do you want to tell us what made you make that switch? Um. Well, I have been doing theater for quite a few years in New York City and doing, uh, you know, mostly off-Broadway and as a, you know, writer and director and stuff for the Ensemble Theater Studio, places like that. And then I um, had an unfortunate incident happen, so it kind of affected my health. And what happened? I, well, I don't really want to talk about it too much, but uh, somebody had, I was the victim of a hate crime. And so I decided to, because I didn't know how my spine was, my spine was injured. So I didn't know how I was going to respond as an actress, singer, dancer. It was, I was in a really low time, but I needed to create. And I just figured it doesn't matter how I create because there's different mediums of which to create. So I decided filmmaking and, um, you know, a lot of people were saying filmmaking would be a good outlet um, because instead of doing plays, you know, you have it recorded and there was many aspects I liked to that. So I went to NYU and, um, you know, learned cinematography and editing and the whole nine yards and decided to switch, you know, reinvent myself. <laughs> reinvent yourself. So filmmaking is a very expensive process. It can't be easy. Filmmaking, uh, if you have the tools, what we decided to do, uh, I'm, I learned a lot about technology. And of course, after NYU, which was, we were working 35 and 16 millimeter, I had to learn digital. So um, I learned it on my own and got the camera and it's, it's doable. And I finished, you know, I completed the film, A Castle in Brooklyn King Arthur. It took quite a few years, but we do get donations through a fiscal sponsor called Fractured Atlas. Um, so people can donate, and it's um, we have been deemed that we're doing socially relevant work 
um, so therefore we can be uh, umbrellaed by uh, this fractured atlas, which is um, nonprofit. Tell us so about your film. Can you tell us about your film that we're going to be looking at the trailer of that concerns Arthur Wood and it's called Castle in Brooklyn? Castle in Brooklyn uh, was filmed over a period of eight years, actually, um, narrated by Global Globe, Golden Globe Award winner Brian Cox, and it brings us through the doors of the Broken Angel building and to its creator's visionary Arthur Wood as he clings to his life's work, the Broken Angel building. It was an icon of the bohemian artist culture that once permeated Brooklyn, New York. So it's Before we go like, in... Tom, excuse me for interrupting you, but before we go into that, I remember you telling me this wonderful story about how you were able to get the great actor, Brian Cox, to narrate <laughs> for you. Would you tell us that story? Yes, gladly. Um, so I wanted to finish my film, and I had done a, a small showing of it for Arthur Wood up in Beacon so he could see it and approve of it because it was very important to me that he liked it. But I was unhappy because I didn't have a narrator. And I wasn't going to put it out in the festivals until I had a narrator. And everyone's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I really want a narrator. So I went to this, this event at the Players Club with my friend Ronald Rand and just had a good time. And I met this, this really cool actress. Well, I knew her before. I went to see her plays, Nicole Ansari. And we were being bad girls who we were like drinking and having a good time and we went to the roof of the players club and you know basically really lying down on the roof looking at people below really crazy it was really having such a great time like two kids and at one point she said hey Tyler what are you doing with your film you know where why aren't you having it out and I said well because I'm not happy I need a, a narrator and I don't have the the money for that kind of narrator I need and she says well who do you want I said Morgan Freeman or Brian Cox? And she said, well, I might be able to help you with Brian Cox. He's my husband. <laughs> <laughs> For a second, because I just want you to tell us a little bit more about Arthur Wood. Arthur is, uh, truly is a visionary artist. And um, what a life. He is now 92. And I do believe he's staying alive to see the actual, uh, you know, we have, the film has been in many festivals. It's won many festivals, it's been all over the world. And right now we're in the middle of getting errors and omissions insurance to get distribution. And he, he is a kind of person who doesn't give up. And to this day, he still thinks somehow he's going to get the broken angel back. And but that's totally unrealistic. It is. Um, there was some strange things with that, um, the building. When we went to the last court hearing, uh, when they finally gave him eviction, final eviction from his home because he wasn't able to pay the mortgage or loan, whatever, I think it was a loan, um, and the, the money had been stolen and frittered away or taken and gone. He, um, they never really, the registration of the home indeed was still in his name. So they didn't, you know what, they're supposed to send the registration to the other party. So it wasn't done very well, wasn't done properly. So because he still was paying the taxes and everything, he, ha he had the impression, well, it's still mine. But I think it's his because it's his 
It was his creation. It's like somebody taking your baby. But now, it, now it's turned into a cooperative where they're selling apartments for over $2 million, from what I've read. So, um, and it all started with the fire, which I remember you telling me was somewhat suspicious. Very suspicious, yeah. Because it was on the very top of the building, which was a 108-foot building. It was like a little tower on the top. And there was no electricity there whatsoever. There was nothing that would nor, you know, catch fire in a blaze like that. It was crazy. Um, and they put it out, and they told him to get back in the building. And in the film, you can clearly see, I mean, I show the before and after, how far the fire went down. And it really, once the tower was removed, it, there was no change in the building. It didn't hurt the building. The building was mostly brick and inside was wood. But, you know, it was, it was an excuse to get them out. And it, it was a dirty little secret because everybody knew it was an excuse to get them out. You know, and the way they did it um, was pretty scary. And the fact that they lost his arrest records when we went to the court. You don't lose someone's arrest records. So it was it was terrifying what they went through. And I got involved because I just, it was amazing to me that nobody was really doing anything about it or protecting them. And I believe in the rights of the individual. Um, in fact, um, the note that Brian sent me, if I can read it, if that's okay. He sent sure. me an email. He said, Dear Tyler, I finally got to see a castle in Brooklyn. An, am an absolutely amazing piece of work on your part, heartbreaking in its portrayal of the decimation of an artist. I couldn't believe how Arthur could get through the horror that was visited on him and poor Cynthia. I'm very honored and proud that you asked me to narrate it for you. I had no idea how deep the power of your commitment to write the injustice that was visited on Arthur was. Thank you for asserting the right of an individual to his or hers artistic vision. So let's take a look at your trailer to the film. Okay. Okay, so let's go to video. Once upon a time, a young artist, Arthur Wood, and his wife Cynthia bought an old building on auction. Arthur had a vision to reconstruct the derelict house into something magnificent. Behind Arthur Wood is his creation, the broken angel. For some, it was a beacon of hope, a monument to the imagination in a neighborhood ravaged by drugs and crime. But to Arthur, it was to be his life's legacy. Arthur was here when this place was ridden with drugs. He, we went through Armageddon here. Arthur is like our king. He's the king of the neighborhood, king of the artists. Before anybody knew about Brooklyn, it was an attraction in Brooklyn. journalists appeared from every part of the world and the Broken Angel was a celebrated attraction in Brooklyn. Why did you want to build something this high? Well, I don't consider it high. I like the view up here. 
people give up when they're 30 and they're not buried until they're 60 or 80, okay? They might as well be dead. My drawing of the Empire State Building for Wedgwood, China. Each one of these was reproduced 3,000 times. And I did it for five years. After living in peace for 28 years, Arthur and Cynthia's lives are changed forever. Okay, we're back. And I'd like to talk to you about another little film that you made that was part of, I believe, a big film called Sweet Soul in Exile about Deborah Masters, whose work is in the Met, the Guggenheim, the Brooklyn Museum. I remember seeing her work up at Storm King Center, and she was also displaced. Could you tell us about that film and what so it's part of? Yes, uh, if I could, I'd like to start from uh, Blues of 475 Kent or Blues of 475. It's, um, it was a brutal mass eviction uh, that was a catalyst for that film and also filmed over a period of eight to seven years. Um, and I immersed myself with Deborah Masters and jazz pianist Connie Crothers to capture uh, the lives of artists living on the edge. You know, what happens to them during, before, and after. Uh, something like that, what happens to their lives, and what happens to the community. So my films are kind of like an odyssey, odysseys, if you will. They're, they're kind of a life, it's not your normal film, go in and get it done and collect your money and leave. Um, so this one, what happened was she was being evicted for the last time for 475 Kent. She still had an apartment there. Her studio, she had to move up to Ghent, New York. Uh, during the first terrible evictions. But when the building was sold, uh, they really tried to get rid of her, which they did to a lot of the artists because they weren't rich enough, I think, or that's my opinion from what I've examined so far. So it's, an, it's kind of an odic encapsulation of her eviction from her loft. And when I say an odic encapsulation, it's, it's, you're just seeing her you're witnessing her emotions as she's going through the gamut of leaving her home of all those years, of leaving her community, um, and her artwork as it's being pushed out through the doors and through the archways. You have these huge statues and artwork being pushed out. So it's almost like the art's being evicted, the art's being pushed out. So that's what, it, when anybody who sees the film um, and it was in Melbourne and all over the world. They liked it for well, that. She's, she's, a, she's an extraordinarily accomplished artist. Didn't she do that beautiful mural at JFK? She did. Um, Terminal 4. Terminal she, 4. Yes. And anybody who comes into this country uh, sees that first thing up on the walls. Let's go to video and take a look at Deborah Masters and let 
the audience see that one aerial shot because later on we're going to talk about your skill with drones. <laughs> Well, Always Here is in development and production as I am finishing the editing on Blues for 475. So I'm working on one in post-production and I am filming another. And the reason you can do that is you don't get, you get spurs of people calling you, yes, you can interview me. You're not paying these people, so you have to make appointments. A lot of the work is sporadic. You have to go out sometimes weeks at a time like we did to Kentucky. We went to Kentucky for two weeks to uh, film an archaeological site um, and the marvelous discoveries that uh, Dr. Gramley had made there with um, a Seneca shaman by the name of Sam Briggs. And it was, it was incredible. So we have time in between that we can edit, and that's what we're doing. We're doing two things at a time, which I often do. Um, but that you're talking about always here. We haven't the real name of it yet. But it's focused on it's on the cultural erasure of First Nations that has occurred for hundreds of years through the destruction of their ancient artifacts and historically relevant sites. And it begins with the Skibiski site in Massachusetts, which is a 10,000-year-old site that was recently saved from destruction uh, due to community effort. And so we revisit that situation throughout the film because it's not over. It, uh, some states like Massachusetts have a terrible record of destroying Native American sites. Yes, one of the children that you interviewed tells that. I was quite astounded. Yes, I didn't know it either. I mean, I was attracted to that movie because of a petition I saw online. Yeah, what, actually, what did attract you to that? The petition. I saw a petition about this thing called the Skibiski site. A petition? And, yes. <laughs> and the peti- yes. 
And I signed it, of course, because it was about, you know, Native American history and it's being, it's going to be destroyed because they're, they're, um, you know, want to build a roundabout and, you know, it's not, doesn't need to be done. And then I learned about uh, these Native American people who actually go to these sites to evaluate as well and put, you know, and to keep track of what's going on in cases, burials and cases, something relevant or they, you know, we do have laws, thank goodness, to protect that, but it doesn't, they're not really, if it's private property, you're in a bleak area. And Massachusetts has a leadership in the Massachusetts Historical Commission that is extraordinary. There is not one Native American on that commission. And it's really, known, yes, and it's known oh, for the past. Talk, yes. talk about getting short shrift, you know, it's like just doesn't stop, does it? <laughs> no. In fact, I think, I don't think there's anyone of any color on that commission. And it's except, you know, Caucasians, which I have, you know, if, if it's not very fair, it's been years and years and years that Brona Simon is running that. And I don't, it's not run by real archeologists and it's run by people who have prejudice in their, in their ideas. They have these old ideas. Archeology span has moved along. European archaeology has moved along. Now we know that there were different kinds of humanoids. We know that there are different things as it goes along, not in the United States. It's almost like if you, we have a paleontologist, um, Dr. Gramley, and, and these people like him are so, you know, ostracized because they go, well, actually, no, this is actually 16,000 years old, or this is, and they date them, but they, there's these people that, or these it's like a click and they want to keep the knowledge where it was probably because a lot of people put their fame, their journals out. Tyler, I can listen to you talk about this forever, but we're going to have to go and take okay. a look at it because I want to have enough time for you to talk about what you have done with the drones. What made you start with the drones and, and how to, and tell us how they work. Well, drones are a uh, very necessary in today's business of film, I think. Um, years ago, one would have to hire an airplane or a helicopter to do an aerial shot. Um, the photographer would be in there and you weren't, I don't think the director was even in there. Or they, I don't know how they could communicate, but you were kind of perched over doing aerial shots. And you can see them in the old movies. They're kind of like shaking, you know? So drones are great because there's like gimbal cameras and it's nice and steady and smooth. And, you know, I did it because I wanted to have aerial shots for Castle and Brook and King Arthur. And I tried to... And how do, you, how do you see, how, if the drone is up there, how do you see, you have a camera that you look in and you see it? Well, you have a tablet, goes on the RC, which is a radio controller. And the radio controller connects to the, to the drone. So you can see everything the drone is seeing because you have a camera on the drone. Is and there any way of being inside the drone? Well, if you, you can wear goggles. I mean, I do are have there goggles. Are there, do they have goggles like that? Do I do have it? goggles. Do you but use I mean, I do occasionally. But if you're using goggles, you really need a couple of people with you because you don't see what you're doing, you know, with your hands. And if there's people around you, you know, you have to be alert, situational awareness, as we call it. So when we work uh, with drones, we do have a visual observer. I always do, always, 
um, very rare, and I have to be in a very uh, specific situation that I will work without a visual observer. So that that's kind of important. So, you know, I passed my license test because I couldn't find someone to do the shots I wanted. And I said, well, I'll get a drone to do it myself. So basically, that's what I've done with all my films. I film, I edit, I had to learn everything. I had to learn everything. I want to end on this note. I want to go back because I didn't ask you about the fact that you had actually gone before the United Nations, right? Mm -hmm. You want to just, in two sentences or more, tell us about that? I was under the impression that human rights that violations of human rights were punishable or something could happen. I didn't know that they weren't. And so when I was investigating for Castleberg King Arthur and Blues for 475 Kent, uh, which were glaring violations of human rights, what they were doing to these people, throwing them out, you know, without a place to go and the things that were just ridiculous. So I met Shula Koenig, who was recently deceased, and she was um, one of only five Human Rights Award winners. And she consented to see me, and she hooked me up with um, an organization in Washington and a couple of other organizations. And she said, you should show your film at the Universal Periodic Review of Human Rights Violations of the United States. So I was able to get um, accredited by a Rutgers uh, University organization. I think it's called the Global Committee of Women's Leadership. I might have that backwards. And so I was able to be vetted and accredited, and I went over to the United Nations with Switzerland and showed parts of Blues of 475 and a castle in Burton King Arthur. And also, it, uh, they also had something at Columbia University. So they asked me to speak about what I call preemptive forced eviction. And that's what those people uh, happened to them because they didn't ha it wasn't a legal eviction. It wasn't a normal eviction. They were, you know, somebody came to their door and they had five hours to get out at 475 Kent. So just imagine, nowhere to go. I, I don't want to imagine. 20, it was 20, it was so cold. It was Martin Luther King Day, no moving trucks, it was horrific, and they came with axes down the hallways, and you can hear Guy Lesser really describes it so well, like kind of very militaristic. He said it was, it was terrifying, and if you didn't open your door, they took the axe and they knocked it down. So people really didn't know what was going on. They really had no idea. It was the middle of a Sunday. They were getting ready to do their laundry or whatever, and these people appear at their building and say, get out. The building might blow up because there's a matzo factory in the basement. It's a wonderful thing that you can able to show this and stand up for these people. So I want to thank you. I want to say goodbye. And thank I want you. to tell you that I'm a huge fan of yours. <laughs> both what you do technically as an auteur producer, director, but also because you're such a fighter and because you stand up for people who are really suffering. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. So thank you so much for being a guest on Badass Women and you personify <laughs> being a badass. <laughs> Remember, we are on the last Tuesday of every month. So here's a big embrace 
and see you next time.